The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 125 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all experiences expressed as a show on my own, I'm not my president of past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So we had a big show last week with award-winning entrepreneur, best-selling author, and one of the most influential cybersecurity professionals in the world, and certainly one of the most influential cybersecurity professionals in the United Kingdom. Mrs. Jane Franklin appeared on episode number 124 of Task Force 7 Radio to explain what the real implications are to organizations who fail to attract women into the cybersecurity industry. And this is a topic that we have explored extensively on this show, and we will continue to do so because we're always coming up with people that have people have great ideas, new ideas, and different views on how uh, we should go about solving this. So, Mrs. Franklin speaks with great authority in the specific detail on how gender bias manifest, manifests itself and technology cultures. She's an outstanding speaker with real-world experience, and I think she is a great role model for young women looking to get into STEM careers, build their own businesses, or even tackle the common challenges that we all face in the, in the corporate world for those of us who have that corporate experience. So she was great on last week's episode. As you know, she spoke about what leadership and hiring managers can do to create more equality in the workforce and what are the clear benefits of having a gender diverse technology team in your organization. And as we know, if you can articulate what the value add is, if you can articulate the benefits of anything of any type of uh, any type of process, any type of strategy, and you could show that it's going to affect your uh, bottom line, then yes, um, you're going to get a lot more traction. And of course, uh, I think this does. Now, there are currently millions, allegedly millions, of unfilled jobs in cybersecurity around the globe. And one has to ask, is it at all possible to meet this unprecedented demand for talent without attracting more women into the cybersecurity space? So if you haven't already listened to the show and you want to find out the answer to what I think is a very important question that really could affect the national security of Western nations, 
find your play, favorite playback medium, check out the TF7 radio episode library, and see what award-winning entrepreneur and best-selling author Jane Franklin has to say on last week's episode. That's episode number 124 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which we're working very diligently to up, uh, update, which is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 Radio. So we're on at least a dozen different playback mediums now, and we've made it super simple for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and you will see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to, to our show right from the TF7 Radio website, which we think is the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So we got a great show for you this evening. The president of cybersourcing and advisor to Task Force 7, Jay Vanderwerken, is going to be with us tonight. So cybersourcing is a firm committed to serving information security executives within the United States and globally as well in key areas of cybersecurity and emerging technologies. Jay runs a very niche business where he can leverage his subject matter expertise and his diverse experience in areas where his knowledge is really greatly needed. Before launching CyberSourcing, Jay was the Senior Managing Director of Corporate Partnerships at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering, where he interacted with dozens of CISOs from Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. and from around the world in the areas of cybersecurity education and STEM careers. So before working at NYU, Jay worked as a managing partner at Dutch Investment Group, which is a boutique mergers and acquisitions firm that specialized in the New York City and Austin, Texas marketplaces. So you can see how this is all coming together uh, uh, for Jay in terms of his experience. He's an authority on formal training of cybersecurity professionals. And because of this diverse experience that he has in both the commercial and academia industries, he brings a unique perspective on the cybersecurity talent crisis that is now plaguing the job market today. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the show, the president of CyberSourcing, Mr. Jay Vanderwerken. Jay, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you, George. Glad good to be here. Hey, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, and in, these are topics that everybody's interested in, especially the younger folks. So it's going to be a great show. I want to talk to you first about your opinion on the global cybersecurity workforce shortage in the United States. We always talk about the talent crisis here and, and what to do about it and what the solutions are and what the repercussions are really. And it's now projected by 2022, by some numbers, to reach upwards of 1.8 million. And actually, I've seen numbers much, much higher than that and in the millions, um, like a two, three million uh, I've seen. Will we ever be able to fill all these positions? Yeah, so, yeah, and I've, I just saw something recently as well where it was, you know, three million plus. And, uh, you know, in short, I don't think we're going to be able to reach it for a long time. And I've got, 
I've got my you know own personal viewpoint as as to why that is. Not to say that we can't in the future, just like any other industries. I think you know the maturation happens, and uh, you know things work out to that. Okay, we've got you know supply it close to demand, but just the way it is with uh, with cyber, it's it's a unique industry, obviously, and there's just not a lot of people out there right now that have that aptitude. Um, or I should say skill set, the, the aptitude may be there and we can talk about that in a little, in a little bit because um, I've got my uh, opinions on, on, on that part in terms of, of people that can do the job but just don't have the skill set. But I think it's going to be a long time before we get to that point. I think part of the problem is you've got people that, that are coming out of schools that um, you know they may even have a, a cybersecurity undergraduate degree but some, from based on my anecdotal information of, of what I've seen in the workplace, sometimes the uh, the hiring managers are separate from the people that are actually hiring the people. And so they'll, they'll look for specific skill sets that a hiring manager wants. And it might be, you know, uh, forced over to the HR department and they get, you know, you've got somebody that's a really good candidate that either just gets uh, blocked out for whatever reason, because they don't have, uh, you know, a certain, skill. And I, I think that happens a lot. I think organizations are overcoming that by hiring their own HR within their um, security practice, so to speak, and, and they can get through that. Uh, but even in there, you know, people want people with experience and that, that's tough to get sometimes if you've got, you know, you've got a whole generation of people that may want to go into cyber and are just, you know, just can't get a break. It's kind of like the, the chicken and the egg. You got to have the experience before you yeah, I can get the job, but uh, yeah, how do you get the experience? Yeah, I know. It seems like a complicated problem, and I've, I've heard all kinds of, you know, solutions being thrown around, but I don't see anything on execution really too much. How much confidence do we really have, first of all, <laughs> that these cybersecurity job protections are really accurate? Because they're astronomical, man. I mean, some of these numbers that we've seen here are crazy. I've never seen them in any job market. No, absolutely. I think it's unprecedented in what we see. I think one thing, and, and you're right, they're all over the place in terms of um, you know what that number is and and where they get their information. Some of the better, you know, the larger consulting firms have put a lot of time and effort into this, and, and you know, they realistically think you know we need a, you know 1.8 million or whatever the number has to be. I I, I see it similar to uh, other industries. Let's let's you know go back in time to, uh, to farmers, you know, you've got, you know, a hundred years ago, what was it? 99% of the people in the United States were farmers. And now it's, it's literally reversed where 1% of the farmers, does that mean, you know, as our population grew, you know, how we could have looked at it a hundred years ago and say, Oh, there's no way we could feed all these people. But as technologies get better, uh, and, and more efficient, we can do that. I see the same thing with, with cybersecurity. I mean, it happened with engineers, with, with building skyscrapers. I remember talking to a guy who was an engineer, uh, that uh, civil engineer that designed uh, literally skyscrapers, and this was probably a decade ago. And when he first came into the job market to build a building, it took hundreds of engineers. And then he told me, you know, again, this was 10 years ago, he said, now it takes five. You know, and does that mean that all these people are out of jobs. No, they'll go, they'll go get other jobs. But I think as technology gets better, as it did with you know the farming and agriculture, and with uh, you know with civil engineering, the same thing's going to happen with cyber. We're going to get better technologies that we, when you say okay, we need 
2 million people to fill, you know, the, the jobs in the future. I don't think that these studies are taking into account technologies are going to get better. We're going to have entrepreneurs that are going to be building things that really do a great job and will decrease the amount of uh, jobs necessary. Not again, I don't think we're always going to have need the people, but of the astronomical figures that we're talking about, those technologies are going to make up for quite a bit of that, in my opinion. Yeah. So do you feel that people are actually leaving the cybersecurity industry faster than new people are actually entering the cybersecurity market? Because I see a lot of people leaving for other adjacent industries like, you know, audit, risk, and things like that that are related. There's a lot of synergy there. But right outside of information security, there, there, I see a lot of people leaving. And I think from my experience, I think people are stressed and these CISOs are getting, you know, put down as the blame guy, right? Uh, or girl, right? They're basically just, you know, taking the hit for anything that goes wrong. And everybody above them kind of enjoys you know, their jobs and keeps going and, and kind of puts the blame squarely on the, the, the CISO, when in reality, the system has to depend on the, the larger organization to get their job done. And then that kind of political, I guess, atmosphere and that kind of stress trickles down to the troops. And you, you see a, a huge amount of volatility, in, I think, in the, in, the, in the space. And I think people are leaving, but what do you see? I, I, I do see that. I, I haven't seen the metrics as to, you know, are they, are they leaving faster uh, than they're, they're in there coming in, but it definitely is an issue. I think the issue stems, and you hit it, or you said the, the stress level. I mean, the studies that I have seen that, are, that seem to be pretty thorough, uh, you know, even one as of within the year stated that, you know, 65% of IT and, you know, security people specifically have thought about leaving their job. You know, that's not a good, I mean, that's not a good percentage. It's, that's quite alarming, especially when there's so few people that have, you know, the abilities to do these types of jobs. And I think the problem goes right up to, to the top management, to the, to the CEO, um, in terms of building or letting your CISO build a culture where they don't feel like, okay, if you fail one time, you're gone. Um, I, you know, it, it reminds me of a, uh, uh, an example that uh, this guy was a CISO of, uh, still is of a, a very large financial institution. And he, he told me, he goes, when I got hired, I told, I told the CEO and the CFO, I can guarantee you two things. I can guarantee you will get breached. And then as soon as he said that, the CFO kind of you know, looked at him like he had 10 heads, looked at the CEO, like, why is this guy even in the room? And then he said, secondly, I will do everything I can when we are breached to contain that breach and keep you up, updated as to what's happening. He was very forthcoming with them. And, you know, they, the, the dialogue started. And, uh, you know, by the end of the interview, the CFO was on board, you know, just saying, you know, it's, there's no, you know, there's no magic thing that's going to make a company um, unbreachable. And uh, he was very forthcoming about that. I don't think that that is true. And he has a great organization, you know, and the, and the, and the guys in the top positions, especially in, you know, I think in the financial institutions, because uh, that's, you know, a lot of the, you know, you know, where's the money, you know, just like in the 1800s, they go to the banks the same way now. And so the, you know, these guys, have, they constantly, be on their guard and the ones that are running good, um, you know, they've got a good culture there. They don't, I, I think based on the turnover I see there versus other places, 
the ones that have good leadership skills, you have less people leaving. And that I don't think that kind of stress, okay, you do one thing wrong and you're gone. That's what's that's what's making that number go up. And that, that trickles down. If the, if the CISO feels this way, everybody's going to feel that way, um, in, in my opinion, in the whole organization. It's, so it starts again, I think the leadership goes to the, to the top. You know, no doubt. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, I've heard in, in meetings, if we stop an attack 100 out of 100 times, it's a tie. But if we stop the attack 99 out of 100 times, we lose. Yeah. <laughs> And no, in that scenario, there is no winning scenario, right? Right, and, right. And, and that, that type of mentality does trickle down. And I think it just, at some point, people look around at each other and they say, hey, man, what am I doing here? You know, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's very, very stressful. Um, we definitely have to do something about the leadership piece. I, I feel that, you know, we talk a lot about business skills and, and, and risk skills and, and, and against technology skills and you need them all to do the job you know what's more important and I think at this point you know we really need leadership in this industry uh, more than anything so I want to ask you about the commercial market since the commercial market and much of our critical infrastructure is responsible for defending themselves essentially do you think the inability to fill these positions is posing a national security threat to the United States we already know that cybersecurity is a national security threat but is it worsening the problem? And if so, should the United States government be more involved in solving this talent crisis? You know, I've, I've got a lot of confidence in the, you know, the top leaders that I've spoken to, the CISOs in the, in the country, uh, in terms of their, their abilities. And I, I want to kind of go back to the, the last question, because it'll, it'll run into this one in terms of, you know, we talk about leadership and what is leadership and, and that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, but I've seen those CISOs who have leadership abilities, they have, they have the technical aptitude, but then they're also, you know, whether it's a personality thing, I mean, these guys grew up, a lot of them grew up, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't formal education, right. For a a CISO, the ones that are in the current position now, you know, a lot of them maybe got computer sciences as an undergraduate degree and then, you know, stemmed into cyber from there, but they also, uh, the, the ones that I've seen be successful have taken either they got an MBA or they had leadership skills where and the people skills to make that happen within their organization, not just a kind of an IT guy that doesn't look out outward. You've got to look outward if you're going to be building an organization that's going to you know go for the long haul and able to talk to management and to you know kind of let them know, hey, this is what's happening in an articulate in a way that, that people can understand. Now coming into coming into your question, I think that those types of those types of individuals have the uh, have the aptitude to be able to, you know, solve our nation's problems. The issue is there's few of them. There's not a lot of those guys out there and girls that can really, you know, have that the leadership capability as well as the technical aptitude to really make things happen. Um, I have. I I look at the technology adoption, you know, and you can kind of see these people as to, you know, the, the ones that really go after it are the, you know, they're certainly the innovators, but they're also the early adopters when it comes to, to, to um, protecting their own company. But I think it it translates to everywhere else. Again, if, if, um, you know, the top innovators are doing it, other people will follow. What we can't have though, is in that technology adoption life cycle, we can't have CISOs at the top being, the late majority on that technology adoption um, 
life cycle. They can't be the late majority and they can't, and it certainly can't be the laggards. If that's happening where you, you have a select few that are really protecting things, you know, the, the hackers are going to go to the lowest hanging fruit. And, uh, you know, they're now going to, I just, you know, I have a, a friend who told me that their, um, their law firm got breached. I mean, a small law firm, but they, but it, they make, a, they make quite a bit of money. And so, you know, they're, they're going to where it's easy, where people haven't thought about security, but if we can get, Anybody that's in a security position to think like an early adopter, you know, we're going to be way ahead of the game. Like you're saying, we're not going to have a national security threat if this if the CISOs can get out of kind of the the daily fires and, and and at least spend some time saying, okay, what else is out there that I need to be aware of, rather than just doing the daily job and not and not looking, you know, five, ten, fifteen years out. All right, folks, we've got to transition into a commercial break, but stick with us. Lots more to come here on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. If you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at TF7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I'll remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information that's much needed and much waited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pull out some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the president of cybersourcing, Mr. Jay Vanderwerken. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. 
As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the president of cyber sourcing, Mr. Jay Vanderwerken. So, Jay, how has academia kept up with, or is it, is it even keeping up with, the, the curriculum that cybersecurity personnel need at this time? I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that they are in that respect in terms of getting the skill sets in place so that people are prepared to do the job when they enter the market. Yeah, you know, George, the uh, summer trying are trying really hard to do a good job and, and they're doing much better than they were say five years ago, but there's, there's still so many academic institutions that, that are just backwards in terms of things. And, and having worked within academia and kind of more in, in the uh, kind of a business side role with, with corporations, um, they, they have a really hard time transitioning into you know, real world needs. And there's a number of issues with that. I mean, you could, you, we could talk all day long about how, you know, the internal, 
you know, politicking within a university as to what courses actually get out there. Do you have faculty that will actually want to teach them? Because they're, most of the faculty are really concerned with their research. And if it happens to be within their research area, they'll be real, real interested. If not, it's not going to get much steam. So you really, you know, if, if, an, if a, an academic institution really wants to make headway here, they're going to have to hire somebody that's a liaison between the two that really understands the corporate world as well as the, the academic world. And that's still really hard even when that happens. And that's why I think so few are doing it um, well. Again, some are doing it very, uh, a lot better than they were five years ago, but there's still a huge lag. And what is it that somebody really needs? Even if it's, a, you can even have a major in, uh, cybersecurity. There's not a lot of them out there. There's, there's more master's programs, but you could have a, a, somebody who majors in cybersecurity that that you know they may take you know uh, courses that sound good, but when it co- actually comes down to being able to do the work when they come out, that's that's still a missing piece. And you know, from from what I hear, it takes 18 months to get somebody up to speed, even with the aptitude. So yeah, I think there's a there's definitely a deficiency there. So why is it that I see that so many universities are developing, I think, what they perceive to be these security curriculums without the, the consultation of real-world practitioners in the, in, in the space, right? I mean, they don't go out to the corporations. They don't go out to the people that really understand firsthand what skills are needed in the marketplace. They're just making this up on a whim, and I think some of these curriculums are way off. <laughs> it's mystifying. Uh, <laughs> okay. Because yeah, if you if – you, if you're if you're a business person or have a business sense, and you know anybody that's you know, selling something, you know academia is selling. They're selling degrees essentially. Uh, yes, you're learning while you're there, but you know you're buying uh, knowledge to be able to get a degree to then get a good job. And why that's not, you know, it, it's matched up in other industries of you know engineering, let's say mechanical engineering, which has been pretty pretty much the same for a long time. Uh, it's way different when you when you get into uh, technologies such as cybersecurity, and given that, you would think that they would have somebody having a pulse on the industry. Hey, what is it that that CISOs are looking for? Immediately, of somebody that comes out, yes, they understand they're not going to have everything they need uh, once they graduate. But you know, let's give them a good foundation that's there. You know, whether it be on the undergraduate level or even the graduate level. But there is, there is a, a huge disconnect, and, I, and the reason is because they don't have a pulse many times, and they're not taking that inventory. Where the ones that are being successful, are, uh, what they are doing is they have uh, adjuncts that they brought in who are you know, industry guys that are really smart guys doing a good job in their company, and they want to give back. You know, they'll come on as an adjunct professor and have real-world experience that they'll uh, inculcate into the curriculum. That's if you know, they can... They can have that openness on the academic side that is to let them teach um, those principles that that's the best way to do it but it that doesn't happen a lot so should someone interested in earning a degree in cybersecurity do so in person or should they go online given this explosion of on 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 demand and online courses and of course it makes it e- online there's it just makes it easier to take courses and and work at the same time and also because if you want to take you want to go to a college and obtain a degree from someplace that's not where you work. Um, Cause you know, in some places uh, there might not be any universities with good cybersecurity programs where the person is, is, uh, is working. So what, what is the solution here? Sure. Uh, great question. People 
you think that, um, you know, is, is my degree not worth as much uh, because it's an online degree? I think that that day is gone. You know, over the last decade, there have been many cases where you've got really top universities that are offering online educations. And the, the studies have, have come out and it's, it's, you know, it's factual that it, it actually people learn a little bit more online than they do in person. Uh, and, and so in terms of the quality, you're getting the same quality of education. If it's, if it's a good institution that, that's teaching it and they've, they've put it online, the, uh, the difference is very minimal. So, you know, if it works out for you to do it online, by all means, I would highly recommend that because, I mean, it's just today's day and age, you know, it's it gone are the days where people would quit their jobs, go back and get a master's degree, and they go back to work. They're, they're, if they're doing a master's degree, they're doing it while they are still working. Uh, and even undergraduate, uh, you know, if people are having to work and, and put themselves through school, there's undergraduate courses now available and you know, the, uh, there's, there's very little difference between the two. So highly encourage the online if that's uh, what you need to do. You know, it's funny because I have a, you know, I have this view of online courses as being extremely difficult, right? Because number one, I think the, the professors think they need to overcompensate for the fact that it's online and they just pour on the work. You know, I mean, it's a lot of work and I mean, and what, and every week you're just churning it out. I mean, you can only take so many classes online at once if you got a job because it's a lot of work as opposed to if you were going in person, you know, you would definitely not be getting that work. I kind of feel like the education should just be about learning and then about how much work you make someone do. You know, just because you're doing work doesn't mean that you're actually, you know, you're handing in a product doesn't mean that you're learning. And I think um, at some point, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not worth your time sometimes to, to spend all this time working where you could be doing something else. There's so much limited time, especially if you're working, you got a family and sure. if you go, if you go in person, it just seems to me so much easier because they're like, all right, you're in the classroom. They have this conversation. They see you face to face. And, you know, so I always thought that, you know, on, and another thing too, when you're on, when you're online, when you're doing, taking courses online and you want to, um, you know, work with other people in the class. Sometimes you take some courses, especially if you're taking technology courses where, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't normally even reach out to each other and, and socialize in the classroom like that and, and online. It's very difficult to get a, a partner to, to, to study with online and, and, you know, do it over the phone and stuff. I mean, would you, would you, did you come into any of these where you were? Yeah, I, 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 I would agree. I know cause when I would see some of the, the course loads, um, it, did, it did seem sometimes a little overwhelming. If you've never done online before, um, and I think it's up to the professor a lot of times, so that's, that's where you know, the, the chairs of the departments have to kind of come together and say, okay, what's the happy medium here where we're not overwhelming these students and they're getting out of it rather than just doing busy work. They're really learning and, and getting focused on that. And, and they can take these asynchronously, asynchronously or synchronously depending on uh, how the, the professor has set it up. There are, I have seen instances where, where you're talking about having a partner um, I would say within project work, it makes you collaborate. You have to in order to pass the class. But if you're trying to get somebody to work with offline, you know, that, that may be a different uh, scenario. But there are, there are projects that, you know, that professors will have uh, students do where you do have to work together in order to just um, 
to get through the class and get a good grade. But um, yeah, I, I could, there's there's always if you've never taken online before, there's always that kind of uncertainty as you get going. But the, it really varies depending on professors, and then again, that goes back up to the the, the, uh, the chairs of the um, of the different departments, and you know who who are, who is teaching the class. I found the most efficient ones many times are the ones that are, you know, the practitioners, the adjuncts, because they know, hey, this is what you really need, and they'll teach it that way. Uh, I'll give you an example. One, one professor that we had, uh, his class filled up in 19 seconds. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, that, that tells you the difference between, you know, the other ones that, you know, took, you know, the regular amount of time, but the ones that are really good, you know, people understand that, and they, they know, and they're learning from them, say, hey, this is what I really need for the real world when I get out. Wow, that's amazing. Should, should, should companies be recruiting prospective cybersecurity employees outside of traditional computer science curriculums? Because right now, that's it's not working. 100% yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is there are many people out there, and kind of the beginning of our conversation here uh, is that there's, there are many people out there with the aptitude uh, that can do cyber if they so chose to. And, and you're basically Xing them out of the equation if you don't give them the, the, the chance. I mean, there's, even if they didn't have a technical background, if they have a psychology background, that's immensely useful in, in security, just, just kind of getting in the mind of a hacker and what, you know, why would they do certain things. They may not be really good astutely at the, uh, at the technical part, but they can, you know, they can learn that on the job in, in a lot of cases. They... Uh, but but absolutely, I mean, there's there's cases where people who are biology majors or, or English majors, or political science majors, you know, you get iced out of you know going into a master's program in technology. You know, if you and, and to try to get a job right now, good luck. You know, in in a, in a cyber field with a background that's other than you know computer science, and I think that's that's a shame that we're not giving these people a chance because that's going to help close that gap, you know, if, if, we, if we're automatically taking 50% of the, the students out of the equation to not even consider them for jobs. Now, some of the onus is on the, the academic institutions to help them with that. Some of the things that um, we were doing at NYU is that uh, there were these bridge courses that would help people uh, that, let's say they did major in English, if they had aptitude uh, in, in the sciences, they would take some bridge courses that were, you know, very, very heavy, but they, they could get them done in a couple of months. And then, you know, if they came out of that, we'd then uh, allow them to, um, to submit in for a master's program, which, you know, that's what they're doing on the academic side. I think corporations like, you know, similarly need to do uh, you know, something that helps people. Hey, you may not have that aptitude right now, but we see, hey, you like figuring things out. You know, that, that right there, to have the curiosity to figure things out, is going to take somebody a long ways. You know, what do you think about the GMAT at a certain point for, you know, people that have been professionals, for people in their 30s and 40s that are taking master's degrees? Should they be taking the GMAT at that point? And, I mean, what's more important, the GMAT score or their experience in the field at that from the age of, you know, since they graduated college? For the last 15 sure. years, what have they been doing? I, I think it's antiquated. I don't, I don't think it's needed, when it, especially when it comes to technology. You know, somebody has that background and they know it. Now convincing uh, universities to, to drop that is another thing. Uh, some are doing that, some are not. I think it's um, a mistake because there's a lot of people that 
you know, they, they forego getting further education because they don't want to deal with the, the GMAT or the GRE. Yeah, I think it's a big deal. And they've already yeah. proven themselves, you know, in the workforce. These are successful people. It's not like, you know, they've got families, they've got their full-time jobs and anything else that they're doing. They don't have time to study for a test that really doesn't, um, you know, showcase what they can do. Yeah, you know, there's a lot coming out in this conversation. I mean, you know, I, I, got a, I, I have a master's degree and I took a bunch of courses for the double major for a couple other master's degrees. One was my MBA and one was a, a master's degree in, in security management. And I think I have, you know, maybe four or five classes to take to finish both of them. And I'll have these other two master's degrees. But at this point, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot of classes to go ahead and get those master's degrees. But at this point, you know, I mean, the amount of time it takes that, and these are on, these are online courses that I have to take for this university. And it's just an enormous amount of effort. And, you know, the time, the time frame is just, you know, and I don't know at this, at this stage of my career, it's just for me. It's not for my, you know, it's not going to advance my career or do anything like that, but it's just for my own, you know, self satisfaction or just to do it because I want to sure. do it. But I mean, I, I, and the reason I don't finish is because man, the amount of time that it takes for an online course, they just pound you and it's crazy. But do you think, yeah. go ahead, do you have something? No, I absolutely agree on that front. They, uh, People that want to go back to school to do it as kind of a self-fulfilling thing, that, that's different than do, having to do it to, to get a job. I mean, the MBAs, um, people, the enrollments are down. Uh, I think that's going to continue to happen. I mean, I, I can't, going back to a conversation I had with, um, with a, a guy at Oracle who was at the time in charge of all of their, their hiring, and he said, Larry, you know, Larry Ellison, he goes, Larry doesn't care where you come from. If you can do the work, you're going to get hired. <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah, right. it's going more and more that way, especially you know with with uh, technology. So, do you think that employers have this preferential list of universities that they prefer to recruit from because they believe that those universities understand the skills needed in the marketplace more than others? I think some do, uh, and I think those again. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to that. Um, you know, that, that life cycle, the technology adoption life cycle, I think is no different when it comes to, you know, adopting, you know, new uh, workers in the workplace. People that saw this coming where they, they saw that you know, this, this skill set of cyber needs to be here. Uh, the ones that I knew were looking at doing this 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where they were going to the universities because, again, that's where the talent is that they know these people have shown some aptitude. So they've already set those channels up, and I think they got used to that. They would give advice into the faculty who were, who were flexible and open to hearing things about what they needed to do for you know, their uh, coursework. And so they started really a nice synergy uh, there. And then, obviously, that grew to then hiring students that came out from there. So I think one of the biggest glaring problems that we have here with the talent crisis is when you go into a computer science course in a university, uh, you look like you're walking into a fraternity room <laughs> and mm -hmm. there's no women in these classes. It's like, you know, it, yep. it, it, it resembles the marketplace in a lot of respects where it looks like there's like 10%, you know, women in these uh, computer science courses. So are universities doing enough to attract women to STEM related careers? I mean, they're supposed to be out there you know, educating everybody about the economic opportunities. And, and I don't think they're doing that. Some are, most are not. Uh, the, the ones that are really good at it will go, they'll dive down and they'll have summertime programs for kids in the fifth and sixth grades. I mean, it's been shown, the studies have shown that 
it's by junior high if if a girl has not decided to go into a STEM field, you know that or that that's when they decide whether they're going to do something in mathematics or science. You know, is that critical age of you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. So what the good universities are doing is they're having programs where they will they'll, they'll bring in young girls to say, hey, let's learn coding, let's learn this. Um, not a lot are doing it, I and mean, we're talking a handful. That should be happening happening a lot more. I think they that they. they there's not, not a whole lot of programming courses uh, or computer science related courses in, in many of the uh, just, you know, elementary schools. And that, that should be starting early on to get these kid, kids interested. And this includes yeah. Silicon Valley. I mean, I, I, knew, I talked with an executive from a large company in Silicon Valley, and his son was starting this. His son was about 16 at the time, just kind of as a business to get kids interested by having separate courses of computer science for, you know, young age elementary kids, because even in Silicon Valley, the schools weren't doing that, which is very unbelievable to me, but that's the way it was. Yeah, I know. I see a lot, uh, I see a lot of corporations setting these, you know, outlandish, you know, quotas for hiring women into these positions when the talent pool is not there. Mm-hmm. You know, and we talk a lot about quotas and there's, you know, I think it's good to set goals, right? I think it's good to set the goals and aim, you know, for, for these goals in terms of, uh, not only women, but other, other diversity uh, factors as well. But and it starts a long time. It starts way before. Okay, now let's get you know women in into our you know uh, yeah organization. I mean, it's it's okay they're there, but there's four. You know. And yeah, I mean, I think we got to go. That's way not early. their fault. You know that that you know there's not more than that. It needs to start a way before even they're out of high school. And yes, high- yes, that's right, that's right. And I think the corporations need to help do that. Right. They need to go educate the, uh, the, the folks in academia. Hey, this is what we need to do. Because I, I think this is the core root of the talent crisis. Right? I mean, I, if you can't, if you only have half your population interested in a certain field, of course, you're not going to have enough people to, to, to fill right. the spots if you have a, a, an increase um, in jobs in the space and you need to, to scale. I mean, of course, that's not going to happen. But, and, where, uh, and where do they feel welcome? You know, I've, I've talked to women that have risen to the top and say, you know, how did you do it? What did you, and she goes, well, this one particular woman that I'm, I'm thinking of, she said, all of my friends in college, you know, I was interested in math and science and I was taking computer science classes and my friends could do it too, but they, you know, we walk into the room and there's every, all guys, you know, and, and so my, two of my friends right away just didn't want to do it. She goes, I plugged through and did it. So, you, you know, you have to, give it to those, those women that do that. But that's, that's no doubt far between, you know, it's crazy. We have some, uh, uh, some women on the show who are senior professionals in the space who describe some of the challenges that they have gone through uh, in this industry. And when you hear some of the stories, you're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, you really have to, you know, you listen, you have to listen and you have to be part of the solution. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, I guess it's a multi-pronged approach. Jay, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, the president of cybersourcing, Mr. Jay Vanderwerken. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. 
in business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Reedus. 
If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the president of cybersourcing, Mr. Jay Vanderwerken. So, Jay, in this final segment of the episode, let, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about emerging technologies. And this is something that your company is very involved in. And so, can you tell us exactly what cyber sourcing does in the industry? Sure. So, upon this, the uh, what I saw at NYU, I worked with dozens and dozens of uh, CISOs, and kept seeing the same issue arise in terms of kind of what their angst was, and and, and believe it or not, it was uh, the overload of vendors that are selling them uh, their wares, you know, and what, I think we're at what, 2,600 or whatever the latest number is. And you can imagine there's only so many CISOs out there, especially in the, you know, with Fortune 500 companies, they're just getting bombarded. And what I did was uh, thought, you know, there's got to be a solution here in some way. So what, what cyber sourcing does is uh, we are a, a a significant filter for the noise that's out there. So when we bring a company as a recommendation to um, to our clients, it's it's somebody that's been vetted. It's a transformational company. It's just not you know somewhat better than somebody else that's that's doing something similar in a niche area. So that's the you know, kind of in a, in a nutshell what uh, what cyber sourcing does and bringing good value to the the systems who just don't have the time uh, to to vet all of the companies that are there. So what do you think the companies are doing that don't fit the agenda of the CISO? I mean, what are they doing in terms of the interaction with the CISOs that, that isn't working and that probably annoy the crap out of the CISO? Yeah. I mean, if you look, you know, look back on, you know, we both have technology backgrounds, you know, in terms of uh, product and, and things like that. It, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it was very different. Uh, you know, you, you, I think of Steve Jobs, who's out there literally selling the wares of Apple, uh, you know, trying to sell things at the, the conferences. That was back then. Now it's, it's, so, it's so different now uh, of how to get to decision makers. They're not going to be walking by, you know, the, the, the vendors on, uh, you know, on the, at the RSAs or what have you. They, uh, they're going to go to their friends <clears throat> and colleagues who they trust uh, to say, hey, you know, this is what we're, we're dealing with. What about you? You know, very kind of sidebar conversations from a lot of the conferences that are out there. I think that's where the, the, the greatest value is coming um, when, they're, when they're actually looking to, to buy a new product or what have you. I think what they get annoyed with was just the, the bombardment of emails and calls and voicemails and you know I, I can't tell you how many i've heard say you know somebody sent me an email and then they followed up with five voicemails saying hey just want to make sure you got my email that doesn't that just doesn't work you know, you, you got to there's some way you have to figure out how do how do you can how can you um be of value to uh, a CISO or maybe somebody that works for a CISO uh, to be able to, to lend your knowledge in a certain area that where you may have a company that you know you feel has a as a good has a good product, but the, the overload is just, is just, they get on average, and this is anecdotal information, but I've asked several of them, they get five to 700 emails a day. A lot of them are actionable emails. And do you think they're, they're going to go through a, 
and have time to go and vet, okay, let me meet with this person who it's going to take at least an, you know, half hour to an hour of their time. Even if it's the greatest thing in the world, they just don't have the, the capacity to do that. Now saying that, I think they also need to, uh, do what some have done, which is they, they actually have a person that looks at new, uh, you know, the larger companies will, it uh, looks at new technologies because they know they can't have their head in the sand. They have to be able to see still what's out there. So what suggestions would you give the vendors looking to sell some of these solutions to a product uh, uh, or, uh, you know, some of the, some of their solutions and, and products and services to the CISO community? How would you recommend they interact with them? Again, the old ways are, are tiresome, uh, but if you can get some type of a relationship of trust, for, fortunately, I've had the, 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 the background with, uh, with being with them on the, on the academia side where I built a lot of good relationships and, they, and you know, I have a trust there where, where they trust me if they say, you know, Jay with CyberSource, I'm going to bring me something, I'm going to, I'm going to take a look at that. Somehow get into their you know, ecosystem of where they're looking at uh, new product. Uh, maybe there's some that have days where they, they uh, bring in uh, people to, uh, to talk about new solutions. If you can get on their agenda that way, there's, it's just, it's, unfortunately there's no easy answer to say, okay, and this is how you're going to be able to connect with uh, the CISOs that are out there because somebody, their time is valuable and they, they have to very much uh, rely on others uh, to, to make sure that it's not spent where their time's not spent where it shouldn't be. So how about the CISOs themselves? I mean, what suggestions do you have for them as it relates to being in touch with emerging technologies and being able to sift through all these vendors out there? I mean, what should they be doing? I, I would um, highly recommend, again, they're, they're doing it anyway uh, in terms of uh, leaning on their colleagues and having good uh, relationships with those that they can open up to and, and, and talk about their challenges. A lot of them are not going to talk openly about that um, you know, in, a, in a group forum, but they will mention it to, uh, to their colleagues. I've been fortunate to be kind of in the inner circles on some of these things where they, they kind of go back and forth and, and with what each other uh, is doing, you know, for, you know, it could be uh, any number of topics, but uh, the third party risk or cloud uh, security, uh, they would be able to talk plainly and openly about that with somebody they trust. Now, how do you get to be that trusted person? Uh, they, you know, I, I just talked about that a little bit, but in terms of, you know, what should a CISO be doing, I think to be open, uh, to know that there are, there are, people out there with knowledge and with solutions that might be able to help you. There's, there's, it's such a world of entrepreneurs out there now where there, there are some that are really uh, coming up with some cool stuff that they should be looking at. And I don't, I don't think they can afford to just rely on maybe just their inner, what they are relying on right now. I think that if they look outwardly a little bit more, not to say let everybody in, but to say, you know, if there's somebody new out there that that might be a good resource for them uh, just to, you know, be aware of that, that, that they may be able to help. And a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of, you know, people that are in this business that want to help uh, assist with his, uh, in his position. I think a lot of these companies that are creating these innovation centers and designating a certain group of people in their team to take a look at all the emerging technologies, know the industry, know what certain products are uh, in different domains, and especially like, you know, okay, what are all the end, endpoint security products? You know, what are all the uh, IAM products like it, just to have that 
that view and spend the resources and, and time and money to, to build those teams is really valuable to them because that gives, that gives the vendor someone to interact with on a regular basis to build relationships. And also, especially if these people are trusted, uh, you know, trusted partners of the CISO, that's, I think, a great way to get the, the CISO's trust. Um, I don't know if enough people are actually doing that because it's, you know, it's not cheap. You got to hire no, a bunch and, of people to do it. And, add, and adding on to that is to make sure that those people really know what they're doing because I've run into large institutions where they, they have hired out people to, uh, to vet new emerging technologies and I've seen these, um, these folks sometimes not get it. And, uh, you know, they've been, again, laggards on the side and, and all of a sudden, you know, a year later, they, they finally catch on as, oh, that is something that we should have done. And they missed the, the first time around. It could have saved a lot of, you know, anguish and heartache when they got breached or, you know, close to getting breached uh, if right. they had listened to somebody up front. But I think that having a key person in there that really is vetting it and, and I've asked, you know, how do you really know? How do you really know how good something is? You know, it sounds good on, on the out front. Everybody talks about what they can do and, and, and what I've been told is that you don't know until you put it on your system many times. So, you know, you get, you get as much information as you can and then say, okay, let's, let's do a POC or let's, let's do this. There's a lot of good uh, solutions out there that the, the POC is really, you know, it takes a very minimal amount of time and effort. And they've done that on purpose because these companies just don't have the value uh, or the, they don't have the, the, the people to put on something for two weeks to run a POC. Many times now it's just, Hey, just get somebody to load it up and test it and tell us what you think. And we'll give you a free analysis. And there's, you know, I would jump on that anytime. If you think it's something that really could do the job. So what suggestions do you have for those people that are out there looking to create new products and services? You can't be marginally better. Uh, if I, I think that's the death knell for cybersecurity companies, if you're just coming out and you're another endpoint threat detection company, um, you, you're just going to get lost in the mix. I mean, I, I remember vividly this conversation I had with a, a CEO of a small startup coming back from RSA on a plane. I was sitting by him and I said, you know, I'm walking through all the, you know, the vendor booths and, you know, I look at this one, and I look at this one, and I say, I can't tell the difference of, you know, what do you do differently than what you do? And then he says to me, yeah, I, I did the same thing. I don't know how that guy's different than what I'm doing. I mean, they, they don't know the difference themselves, you know, when they're, when they're walking through there. So you can imagine what a CISO that's got many other things on his mind, he doesn't have the time to get in the weeds and, and figure all that out. But, you know, for those companies that are trying to break in, you've got to have something you know, we use the word a lot, but revolutionary or transformational, it's got to be very different than what's out there in the marketplace for you to get a good look and, and save time and money. Right, right. Hey, Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, George. Really appreciate you having me. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time 
on the Voice America Business Channel. 